Amen. Well, if you have your copy of the confession this morning, go ahead and turn to chapter 27. Chapter 27, the last couple of weeks we've been uh, dealing with some particular aspects of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, and also the power of the Spirit. And in a sense this morning, we are still dealing with the Holy Spirit's work, and we're dealing with the quickening of the Spirit, how the Spirit, in fact, brings us into union with Christ. It is a quickening. Uh, it is to be made alive. Uh, we, as we have already sung in our hymns this morning, uh, we are unable to do those things. We are unable to say it is well with our soul without the quickening, regenerating work of the Spirit. And so our reading from the Valley of Vision this morning on regeneration speaks about where this union with Christ comes from. Uh, our union with Christ is not a mythological idea or philosophy. It is a true union with Christ. Uh, it is a much neglected doctrine and a much neglecting, neglected teaching throughout many churches. We just simply don't talk about the union with Christ. But you've been noticing that as we've looked at this first paragraph of, chapters, of chapter 27, this is the third week we've been dealing with just the first phrases of this. And it says that all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and faith, although they are not made there by one person with him, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So our union with Christ is based upon the spirit, which is by faith. And although we are not made one person with Christ, we have fellowship with him. We are not made a little God. Uh, we are united to Christ, but we do not become God. We do not become one with him in the sense that we are God in and of ourselves. However, there is this very real union. There's very real communion. Uh, when we observe the Lord's Supper in a while, we are not just pretending to be in union with Christ. That's why the Lord's Supper is reserved for only those who have repented of their sins, who have believed on the Christ alone and the gospel of Christ, who are able to partake, but they're the only ones also who would understand what is actually occurring, that there is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And it is a true union. It is not something that is just pretend. We are actually in a union with Christ. So when we think about this, you'll notice back in our text that we read uh, just a, a few moments ago that Paul, as he ended this chapter, we're not going to expound this whole chapter. There's a, there's a, a three or four week sermon that could be found just in 2 Corinthians 3. But I want to draw your attention to those last two verses because we will make reference to those with this regard to this subject of the union with Christ. Now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
this reference to liberty. We understand the word liberty. It, it has the sense of being free from or being unchained from. Uh, it is that those that are in Christ Jesus, those who have received him, who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, are truly, in fact, in communion. We have the law of God written on our hearts. Now, we read the Bible and we read about the law. We study the law specifically in the Old Testament. Paul makes many mentions about the Old Testament law and how it now applies. Romans 6 comes to mind about the law's purposes and how I was dead to sin. And it was the law that brought me to an understanding. It is the Spirit of God that brings us to these conclusions. I cannot tell someone they are united with Christ they know that they are united with Christ because of the presence of the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Spirit is Christ. Where Christ is, there is freedom from the bondage of the law. Now, it does not negate the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is not modalism. This is not Christ saying that He is also the Spirit, or He takes on the form of the Spirit. That is a false teaching. Modalism is a false teaching. If you see that, you see a sermon by even a person you respect who teaches on the truth of modalism, that really should be the last time you listen to that preacher ever again. Because that means it's not the Trinity, it just simply refers to that God just takes all different forms and he takes on the form of the Father, takes on the form of the Spirit, takes on the form of the Son instead of the three in one. That's a crucial understanding. We do not become, and I'm not meaning to be irreverent here, we do not become the fourth member of the Godhead. This unity with Christ has nothing to do with us becoming God. So what does it have to do with? Well, what this chapter in the Confession and even these last two verses of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians establishes the foundation of true fellowship. True fellowship among believers is not on the membership role. It is actually the membership we have in Christ. Our membership is an, a manifestation of our standing in Christ, but it is not what determines whether or not you are actually united with Christ. Uh, there are millions and I'm saying that and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, millions of people on church rolls who are not united with Christ. The united with, to be united with Christ is to, in fact, be in fellowship and in communion with Him. So really, the confession in chapter 27 and even what Paul talks about here is forming the basis not only for the church, but how the church should function. A church functions based upon its unity. Now, we hear the word unity in our churches a lot, and we think, why, why don't these churches get along? Uh, why can't they agree on the color of the pews? Why can't they agree on how things should be? That's not the unity he's talking about here. Although, you know, those things are of no value spiritually at all. It doesn't matter one bit what color the carpet is, what color the pews. It, it means nothing. But our union with Christ does matter. And our unity is based upon the spirit that has quickened us. And that's what really forms the basis of chapter 27, which in the confession is only two, it's only two paragraphs, but there, are, there is so much packed in here. So you'll notice that there are three phrases we're really looking at today when we think about unity or our union with Christ. All saints are united to Christ. That's the first one. By his spirit, 
And then thirdly, united to one another in love. The confession in that paragraph goes on to say that we are obligated as those who are united in Christ to perform and demonstrate our gifts and graces to one another. So whatever you are gifted with, you and I are not allowed to keep that to ourselves. We are obligated to demonstrate those gifts and graces to those we're united with, especially those of our local church. It's an obligation. But it's not a forced obligation. It is something that those who have union with Christ, they want to do. They want to, they want to demonstrate their gifts and graces. But that's really what's at the heart of this, that phrase, united to one another in love. We can only be united to one another in love if we're first united to Jesus Christ by his spirit. You cannot love another brother or sister in Christ unless you are united with Christ, first of all. And that's really what the key to what we're talking about this morning is, is this union with Christ. So what's the first phrase mean? All saints that are united to Jesus Christ. Who are saints? The Catholic Church would have you believe that these are superhero saints. They are people who are worthy to be commended for their works of righteousness. That's not what the biblical definition of a saint is. A saint is one who is in the body of Christ. So biblically speaking, a saint is the elect. A saint is all the elect. So what is the paragraph in the confession teaching us? That the elect, God's own people, given to Christ are united in Christ. In other words, those the Father gave to the Son, those are without a doubt united to and with Christ. How are we united? Well, we're not only united with Christ in his life, death, and his resurrection, which is what that phrase means, that we have uh, fellowship in his graces, sufferings, and death, resurrection, and glory. What that means is not only do we have union with Christ in those things in the past, but we have union also in the present. We are united with him through what? Faith. Our faith has united us. Where did our faith come from? Our faith came from the regenerating work of the Spirit. The phrase that will get the most lightning rod strikes is regeneration precedes faith. Not faith leads to regeneration, regeneration precedes faith. In other words, I don't have faith unless I've been regenerated. I don't have faith unless I've been quickened by the Spirit. Now those of the free will Thoughts would say, no, it was my faith that led to my regeneration. I chose to have my, put my faith into action, and I was regenerated because of my faith. So free will says faith precedes regeneration. Those who believe in the doctrines of grace say, no, regeneration precedes faith. I have faith. I'm united to Christ because I've been quickened by the Spirit. That's what's at the heart of this. So the, the scriptures teach that our regeneration and our new life is the result of our union with Christ. All these things, our union with Christ now is a result of our regeneration. Our new life is a result of this. And our union with Christ was prefaced by these things. In Ephesians 2.5, Paul writes, Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Later on in Ephesians 2.10, Paul
Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We've been quickened unto these things. We've been quickened unto not only being made alive from being dead in our sins, but we've also been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, and paraphrasing, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creature. He's a new creation. Again, continue to paraphrase, the old has what? Passed away. And the new has now come, or the new is now what is there. That's the great blessing of new life in Christ. I have a new life in Christ because of the regenerating, quickening work of the Spirit. That is where my union with Christ comes from. So not only is our regeneration the result, but our justification by faith has its source in our union with Christ. Paul says that our justification was in him. Romans 3.23, a very powerful statement that the Apostle Paul makes. I'm not sure there aren't any powerful statements that Paul makes, but Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified means what? That we are declared righteous by God before he who is worthy to judge our righteousness. Right? We're declared to be righteous before the judge, he who is worthy to declare us righteous or justified. I, you, do not have the right or the authority to, to declare someone justified. That's why I would caution you on telling somebody that they're saved. Be very careful. Now, I understand when we deal with children... There is a bit of a difference, but even that, I would tell you, don't let your emotions as a parent or a grandparent make you change the gospel and declare unto that child and place a thought in their mind that they have not come to the illuminating, quickening conclusion by the Spirit. When the Spirit quickens them, you're going to know it because they are going to tell you what has happened. But only God, who is the righteous judge, can declare he or she who is justified. That's really what the heart of what Paul is talking about, uh, even in Romans. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul also makes mention of this concept of our justification was in him or was in Christ. Galatians 2, verses 16 and 17. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Paul, in both the letter to the Romans and the letter to the Galatians, writes that our justification is in Christ, not by the works in which we do. So not only is our regeneration our justification, but also our sanctification. Sanctification is a blessing that is the result of our union with Christ. Sanctification does not precede regeneration. Sanctification does not precede justification. Does everybody understand that? 
Some religions believe that sanctification comes first. That you do good works, then you are regenerated, and then you are justified. Or they turn the various ways around. Sanctification is a blessed result of our regeneration. Our union with Christ has the blessing of sanctification, being transformed into the image of Christ. Now, sanctification is not wholly passive. In other words, I do not just sit in a chair and say, God, sanctify me. I actually take steps to perform those good works in which I have been been created unto, which Paul says in Ephesians 2. Sanctification is of the Lord, just as salvation is, but that doesn't mean you sit there and say, okay, sanctify me while I sit in my recliner. No, what's going to happen is part of the sanctification process is not only is God doing the work, but as you minister those gifts and graces of your union with Christ, it is part of your sanctification. (laughs) Paul writes, because of him is what he's saying. He is the one. Now, notice in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Paul says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Even Paul says our only glory of not only our salvation is Christ, but even our sanctification. I didn't read it, but the verse, uh, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1 says that no flesh should glory in his presence. Our flesh cannot glory in any aspect of our standing. It cannot glory in our regeneration. It cannot glory in our justification. And it certainly cannot glory in our sanctification. And it certainly will not glory in our coming glorification. That golden chain, the chain of God's saving works, the God's saving grace. Now, because we are in him, sanctification comes from him. Sanctification is the result of that new life that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Romans 6 Paul talks about walking in this newness of life. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. This has reference to our union. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together. Now please notice that. If, if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. The picture of being planted in his, being planted together in his likeness of his death, again, is a mark of union. It's a mark of union with Christ. Being planted together. Communion. Fellowship. Paul says that we walk in the newness of life because of our union with Christ. You're only going to walk with him as you are united to him. Notice in that passage in Romans 6, he goes on further saying in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. 
For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now here's Paul's application of this sermon. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. To be dead, to reckon yourself dead to sin, is to turn away from that and to be reminded and to live through the union you have with Christ. It's a beautiful picture. The treasures of Paul's writings get more and more precious because Paul writes so much about the union with Christ. So we see here that Paul says that the reason for our union with Christ in his death was so that we would die to sin and that sin would lose its power over us. Again, by, by way of application, since we've died with Christ, we will also now live with him. Remember, this united with Christ is not just in the past and it's not just in the future, but it's in the present. I live united with Christ today, not just because of what he did in the past, even though I'm united with him in the past, I'm going to be united with him in the future. I'm to be united with Christ in the present. And if I have been quickened by the Spirit, if I've been regenerated, I am in fact justified and I am being sanctified with the promise of one day I will be glorified. And our union with Christ will become even more real to us because we will be in his presence. That picture in Revelation we've looked at a couple of times on Wednesdays around the marriage supper of the Lamb. I do not think we can even begin to comprehend the beauty of what that's going to be like. Because that union with Christ is going to be the complete fulfillment. And eyes will now see that union that we've only been able to see by faith. So we are to die to self. We're to die to sin. Christ lives. We are to live as his people. How do we live a life that is pleasing to God? We live by his spirit. We live through his spirit. Where did the spirit come from? Jesus himself said when he was going away from his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go away. And if I go away, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will send a comforter. And of course, he was referring to the spirit. So likewise, as Christ died and was raised to newness of life, we are to die to sin and live to God in Christ. It's really a great summary statement of what Paul's entire writings about Romans comes down to. You who are alive in Christ Jesus should walk in that newness of life. Walk like you belong to him. Walk in union. When you say that's easier said than done, how do I die to sin? The only way you die to sin is when you die to self. So until you die to yourself, you're never going to die to sin. Sin is almost always driven by your self-desires. To die to self means I'm no longer living for me. I'm living for the Lord who saved me. I'm living for the Lord who has given me these many blessings, who has poured out his spirit upon me in order that I might live. 
When Paul's talking about walking in newness of life, he's not talking about a reformation of your character. He's not even talking about a reformation of your integrity. He's talking about walk in the spirit that now indwells you, which is a confirmation of your union with Christ because the spirit of God testifies of Christ. That's why I tell you that the way you know you're in Christ is the presence of the spirit. Where there is no spirit, there is no liberty. Where there is no spirit, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. But where Christ dwells through his spirit, there is freedom. Which means if I have Christ, I have the spirit. And if I have the spirit, then I can in fact walk in the newness of life. I've always been asked this question. I ask myself this almost daily still because I heard a preacher challenge us with it one other time. And the question comes up daily. When did you die to self? When did you actually mortify yourself? Not physically take your life, but when did you die to your desires? When did you say, I'm not going to live for me anymore? See, we want God's blessings, but we don't want to live for him fully. We still want the self-life. And that's why you still struggle with sin. That's why I still struggle with sin. Because yourself still loves that sin and it wants it and it craves it and it desires it. And it will do whatever it needs to to fulfill the lust. You need to remember that old nature is still there. That's what the whole context of Romans 7 is all about when Paul says, I don't do the things I should do. He realized that this was going to be a struggle. So the elect are united in Christ. So what does that mean that the elect are also united in Christ with each other? So the union that believers have with each other, which is what the confession says, that we have fellowship in his graces and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in a what? An orderly way. First, the union that believers have with each other is based first and foremost on their own personal union with Christ. You and I cannot be in union together as believers if you or I or both of us are not in Christ. It is impossible for you to be, have a union with Christ with an unbeliever. Now that, that unbeliever might be your best friend. That unbeliever might be your husband, it may be your wife, it may be your son, it may be your daughter, it may be your grandparent, it may be an uncle, it may be a third cousin removed. But you understand something, you cannot be in union with Christ with them, or if you're unsaved, until there is a union with Christ in both of those parties. Now, you might be able to sit around a table and have conversation. You may be able to have fellowship. You might be able to get along but you are not fellowshipping around the table of Christ. Folks, this is why we are so very careful about how we speak, what we speak, and how we say it. That's why I'm not running around here like a crazy man, lunatic, shouting and screaming at you because I want us to be very clear about what true biblical Christianity looks like. You don't need me to entertain you. You don't need me to make this interesting. But what we do need to understand is what God's word says about what man is trying to redefine. 
Man says all a person has to do is have an acknowledgement of God and we're all one in Christ. No, we're not. You say, well, my, my husband goes to church. They just go to a different church. What does that church believe? They don't believe, in, they don't believe in repentance and belief in Christ alone. They believe in good works. Then you cannot be in union with Christ together with them, no matter how religious they are. So what the confession writers were talking about, and even what the fellowship that Paul writes about in his epistles, is that this union that believers have is based upon, first and foremost, their union with Christ personally. The most popular request by church attenders and church goers is we want fellowship. Now, this is a word that might offend some people, and I'm not meaning to offend you. Or what we want from our church is community. Now, those things can be important. But you realize there is no community and there's no fellowship unless there's a united a unity with Christ. These things, if they are truly, if you and I as a church, if we truly are all united in Christ, I'm going to tell you something right now. The fellowship and the community would be so beautiful and so wonderful it would be something you crave after. You say, look, I can't get enough of being around my church family. I can't get enough of being around other believers in Christ because that unity that you have is the very anchor that's holding your souls together. You cannot program that. And you can't preach a false gospel and then say we have fellowship and community that's based upon nothing but man's philosophy and man's wisdom. Folks, we are intentionally so careful about what we say and how we say it. These are not truths that we can be flippant about and just offhandedly say, well, here's what we believe. No, that's why we are so, and, and I like the way the confession writer said it, to perform these things in an orderly way. Everything in, with regard to God is to be done decently and in order. I mean... Some of the things that's being called the name of God is just astounding to me. We say, this is, this is God at work here. There's, that's not God at work. That's man's flesh at work. But yet we are united in him, to him, with him, by his death and his resurrection. That's what Paul continues to talk about in the letters that he writes. Ephesians 1.4, he says, According as he hath chosen us, there's the elect, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This union with Christ is established by Christ, and it is, exercise, it, is, it, is, it is realized when we are truly in him. Ephesians 3, verse 16. Paul, part of Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit. There's that phrase again that the, the confession writers use, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ. Breadth, length, and depth. Breadth refers to our love, his love. Length refers to his patience. Depth refers to the humility, how he humbled himself 
The height is hope. He says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us and what's written on our front door. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Why is that on that door out there? Because I thought it sounded like a good verse to have on the door. No, that's exactly it right there. Unto him, unto Christ be glory in the church. Not the people, not the pastors, not the elders, not the deacons. They don't get the glory. That Christ gets the glory. I don't want a part of any church that doesn't make Christ their ultimate object of glory. Why? Because that's exactly what our union with Christ looks like. It is giving God all the glory. Again, as we've already mentioned, this union does not mean that believers become little gods. Believers will remain frail, earthen vessels, as many commentators have said. It's phrases phrases and vocabulary we don't use a lot, but earthen vessels, like clay pots that are easily broken. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He had previously said in verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, with regard to that, but we have this treasure, the treasure of what? The treasure of Christ in earthen vessels. Frail, broken down, aging, dying vessels is where this treasure is. Believers, secondly, from their union with Christ, enjoy fellowship with each other. They are members of the same body. They're members of the body of Christ. Paul writes in Romans 12, 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Paul goes on in, in chapter 12 of Romans to talk about having different gifts, having different ministries. And he says, let love be without dissimulation. Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You realize your union with Christ doesn't just affect your church life. It affects every aspect of your earthly life. Folks, if you actually live according to your union with Christ, I'm telling you a lot of what we moan and complain about and how we live our life, it vanishes away. See, the problem is we're living too much for what this world offers and we're not thinking about what our union with Christ actually means, not just in the future and not just in the past, but what our union with Christ means today. I mean, how many times did you hear growing up at whatever church you grew up in? Boy, I I can't wait until I get to heaven. I can't wait till Christ comes back. So all of this I don't have to put up with anymore. You're not supposed to live like that. I don't know how many years I have to have that drilled in my head before it's actually going to register. If you live a mopey Christian life, it's because you're not thinking and meditating upon your union with Christ. Plain and simple. 
We should not be moping as people who have no hope. And when we fellowship together, there should be moments when we are just, we are enthralled by the goodness of God that he would allow a group of people to be united together in Christ, no matter how small or how large that congregation is. Folks, I don't think you realize how special it is to be a part of a local church that's united with Christ. This church is a very, very special congregation. And it's special not because of any one of us. It's special because the glory of Christ is there. See, I hope that we love our church that way. It may not manifest itself always in a perfect outward expression of what the world says. This is what we do. But there is a unity with Christ that is unmistakable and it cannot be replicated. When you reach out to me and I reach out to you and I tell you and I authentically mean, sincerely mean, I am praying with you and praying for you. That means so much to me. You, you don't have any idea of what that means because I know that you are united with Christ and our fellowship and that communion we have, that is a special thing. Today it's popular just to make light of the church and turn it into everything. Turn it into an amusement park. Turn it into something that feeds the flesh. Again, I want no part of that. People, are, people that call themselves Christians, are not, they're not satisfied with being fed from the Word of God. They're not satisfied with singing the hymns that remind us of God's glory. No, they want all the things that remind them of all their problems, all their troubles, and how it's all about them and it's not about God. Listen, those hymn writers that wrote those hymns that we hold so dear, those, there's where their answer is. Those scriptural songs were meant to remind them of the goodness of who God is. We are part of a body, a spiritual family. We are commanded to love each other, John 3, or John 13, verses 34 through 35. The gifts that God gives to believers are to be used to serve other believers in the body. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. The confession says that believers are obligated to use their gift for the benefit of the church. Again, that goes back to our previous chapter of chapter 26 of the confession that says church membership is really not optional. We're to be a members of a church. Thirdly, it should be noted that the confession emphasizes the fact that these responsibilities are both private and public. Private prayer for one another, the public attending of the preaching of the word, the corporate worship together. It's just as if when part of the family is missing, folks, it matters. When one person texts me and tells me I'm not going to be here today, it does matter. Even if it's a good reason, it matters because part of the body's missing. And I know in our little church, and sometimes some people say the little churches, it's better. No, it's sometimes it's hard in big churches and little churches. When part of the body is missing, it's just not the same. But believers are to take care of each other's spiritual needs, help one another, encourage one another. This is what we'll talk about in paragraph two. But we are to do this in an orderly way to conduce or to encourage mutual good. So in short, we learn today that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in heavenly places. That's Ephesians 1.3. I want to conclude by reading just an excerpt from John Murray. Some of you may be familiar with him. Some of you may not be. And it's okay because what he says here is spot on. Here's what he observes about our union with Christ. We thus see that union with Christ has its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world. And it has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. The perspective of God's people is not narrow. It is broad and it is long. It is not confined to space and time. It has the expanse of eternity. Its orbit has two focuses. One, the electing love of God the Father in the councils of eternity. The other, glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. The former has no beginning. The latter has no end. Glorification with Christ at his coming will be but the beginning of a consummation that will encompass the age, the ages of the ages. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me just stop there. We, we don't even comprehend. We don't comprehend that because we can't comprehend forever. It is a perspective with a past and with a future, but neither the past nor the future is bounded by what we know as our temporal history. And because temporal history falls within such a perspective, it has meaning and hope, what is it that binds past, present, and future together in the life of faith and in the hope of glory? Why does the believer entertain the thoughts of God's determinate counsel with such joy? Why can he have patience in the perplexities and adversities of the present? Why can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Here's you an application statement. It is because he cannot think of past, present, or future apart from his union with Christ. Folks, that's how you endure every aspect of life, past, present, and future, is because of our union. As Paul would say it much more eloquently than I can say it, all praise and thanks and honor and glory be to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit for our union with Christ by His Spirit. What a union we have, not just with Him, but a union we have with each other. Let's finish. We've been singing familiar hymns this morning. I hope this one's familiar to you as well.